Hello, everyone. My name is Natalie Turvey. I'm President and Executive Director of the Canadian Journalism Foundation, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to our second JTalk Live event of the season. Thank you for joining us for these important conversations on the future of journalism. We're grateful to the generosity of our exclusive JTalk series sponsor, TD Bank Group, for making these conversations possible. And our thanks also to our in-kind supporters, CPAC and Cision. If you would like to support the work of the CJF, you can donate now or at any time on the CJF website. And if you'd like to tweet about today's conversation, our hashtag is JTalksLive. A reminder that our program today is 45 minutes long and you can submit questions for our speakers anytime via the tab on your screen. And now on to our program. Journalism has long privileged police reports in the daily news file. George Floyd's murder in May 2020 and the way initial police reports presented his death along with other high profile cases in the US and in Canada have caused newsrooms to rethink their reliance on what police say. Our guests today will share their perspectives on how journalists can move forward to hold police account for the information they provide to the public. Joining us from Washington, D.C., Karen Atia is a columnist with The Washington Post, covering issues relating to race, gender, and international politics. In Toronto, we have Wendy Gillis, a police reporter with the Toronto Star, covering police accountability and justice. And from Ottawa, Adrian Harewood joins us. He's host of CBC News Ottawa at 6, covering major local news stories. We're thrilled to have them with us today to share their insights and leading this conversation. Please welcome our host, Anna Maria Tremonti. Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to our panelists. Uh, let's just dive right in. There's so much to talk about. Um, a conversation on how to go beyond that shorthand of police say has been needed for a very long time. And I'm going to start with you, Adrian Harewood, because even as you anchor local news in Ottawa, uh, you are also teaching journalism at Carleton. And we know police news always begins as local news and then gets bigger. Um, but you've got that, that dual view of things going on. And I want to know what you're thinking about this right now. Well, I, I'm thinking, I, I guess I grew up in a household where I was taught always to be suspicious of authority uh, and always to question authority, always to question the official story. Um, I was nine, I, I turned nine the year that uh, Albert Johnson, who was a Jamaican Canadian immigrant, was shot by Toronto police. And it was the first kind of high profile case of police brutality uh, in this country. Uh, and thousands of people took the streets in order to protest against that. Uh, I was, uh, I guess it was 20 when Marcellus Francois, who was a 24-year-old unarmed black man in Montreal, uh, was shot by the Montreal police as well. I think I was 16 when Anthony Griffin, who was a, a teenager, a young black Montrealer, who was shot while I think his hands were up and he was walking away from a police officer and he was shot. None of those police officers were ever convicted. Um, and so I've always... I've always been suspicious of official stories by anyone and, and also official stories told by the police. I've always been, been mindful of the fact that any authority, any institution is interested in perpetuating itself. Any institution is, is interested in, is engaged in, um, you know, basically public relations, right? They're, they're always, they're always, they always want to be seen in a positive light and, and the police are, are really no different. Uh, but also, you know, as journalists, our job always is to uh, not believe, right? Our job is to interrogate. Our job is to investigate. Our job is to verify uh, whatever the institution, uh, but, but particularly given the fact that the police officers have you know, the, the ability to use lethal force, right? We have to be particularly mindful of the power of the police and, and the role that the police play in any society. Uh, and so we always have to be questioning and we should never take their word, right? Sometimes they might be telling the truth, but often they might not be telling the truth as well. And so we have to be mindful of that. Karen Atia, what are you thinking? Yeah, I mean, just you know, responding to, to your question and, and to Adrian's um, response, I mean, just in the context of I grew up as a kid in the 90s in, in Dallas, Texas, and I grew up, I feel like, in the frame of 
you know, the cops TV show, Law and Order, the uh, proliferation of, of cops being painted, particularly like in um, entertainment in Hollywood as like, it was cool for us as viewers to be able to ride kind of like visually, like ride around with cops as they were solving crimes, as they were kicking in doors, as they were, you know, busking um, the bad guys. And I think back to, um, you know, as a kid uh, uh, hearing um, about kidnappings and, and brutal killings of, of women or, or girls really, and this sense that crime was all around, that like nobody was safe, little girls, weren't safe, especially if they were white and beautiful and cute, um, and that we needed the police to be able to keep us safe, that they were this line between us and total societal chaos, right? Um, fast forward to, you know, being a, a corona journalist um, and realizing that a lot of those images about um, what it took to preserve public safety, frankly, looked like propaganda or propaganda, right, that, that we call today. And I'm thinking, particularly my eyes open when I was working at the Post and watching my colleagues um, in Ferguson getting tear gassed, getting arrested, journalists um, who were doing their jobs, trying to, to cover protests, trying to cover, you know, societal change. And literally, um, and we, we shouldn't forget this as journalists, being targeted uh, by police. And so I think now uh, we're, we're getting to a, a frame where we are looking at, do we need police, frankly? We're seeing that the calls to, to defund or re-examine police budgets, to re-examine the amount of um, not only sort of financial power that we give police departments, but um, also cultural and, and moral power. And I think for us um, as journalists, you know, um, part of what is, what is happening, I think, is questioning ourselves um, and questioning why we're adopting um, not only the sort of the, the story, the narratives, we've seen um, blatant instances where police lie to us, lie to our faces. And we're, we're I hope we're beginning to question are we helping to uh, perpetuate a system that uh, basically uh, continues to alienate and marginalize you know, those who find themselves at the, the brunt of, frankly, what we're looking at is abuses of power. We give police a lot of power and it is our jobs to investigate whether or not that power is being used well or being used um, in an abusive uh, abusive manner. So I think a lot about that. I'm thinking a lot about not just about we tend to talk about police issues as just police brutality and police shootings. I'm also thinking a lot about um, these cases of um, people who go missing, right? And um, police and law enforcement priorities, you know, uh, women who find themselves uh, in danger, whether or not those cases are, are taken seriously by police. Um, all down to uh, now these debates over police, again, back to public safety, for public health and, you know, COVID vaccinations and, and seeing the immense power of the police unions, especially in shaping a lot of these issues. So, so I think it's really, we're just in a, in a phase where we're really questioning the place, how much power, how much weight we've been giving to, uh, to this sector of society, really. So much to pick up on from what each of you has said. I'm going to let Wendy um, speak first, and then I'll start asking questions. Wendy, what are you thinking? I mean, my, my colleagues have made such excellent points. I, I would just reiterate that we are in a really interesting moment now where we are realizing that the information from the police is not the truth necessarily, by which I mean it is not the whole truth and that it is incumbent upon us as journalists to seek out the rest of the story. Um, so it doesn't mean that we don't report on what police say. Obviously, we just apply uh, the same level of scrutiny that we would to any other source. And then it is incumbent upon us to seek out other sources, get a full picture. For me, what I deal with a lot um, in my work is not just you know, what police say, but what isn't said. So a challenge for me is the omission of information um, that I would argue is uh, challenging in Ontario and in Canada in particular because we do have 
this sort of higher level of privacy. So just for example, a, a challenge that I encounter on a pretty regular basis is that when someone is killed in a police uh, fatal shooting or a car accident or some kind of interaction with the public, um, between the public and the police rather, um, that person is not named uh, de facto. There has to be family permission. And I encounter that again and again, and it really is a challenge because it means we cannot put a face to whoever has died. It means we're lacking demographic data. Um, and we know that uh, black and indigenous people of color are disproportionately impacted by police use of force. And uh, it, it means that we can't go out and seek other sources of information because we can't call the family. We can't contact friends. Um, so from a journalistic perspective, sometimes getting at the really basic information can be a real challenge. So for me, it's about scrutinizing what police are saying and also seeking out information that is often really hard to get. I want to pick up on something um, because all of this, of course, gets entwined. I want to pick up on something that Karen pointed out, and that is the power of the police is also cultural and moral power. And um, in some ways, that is more powerful than the financial power. And I'm, I'm just like, can we pick that apart a little bit? What, what does that mean in terms of journalists trying to get through that blue wall? Yeah, I mean, that's a deep question. I mean, here in the States, I mean, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm joining y'all uh, from, from Texas, uh, actually, and, you know, very, very conservative, like red state. I mean, what other group in the last year has had enough cultural power to be able to basically create its own, there's a, there's a new flag. There's the, the blue lives matter flag, right? Which is the gray and the black, like upside down um, United States flag with that thin blue line. Um, and I, you go around Dallas and see people with shirts with it on with uh, uh, bumper stickers. And it just, again, speaks to the immense uh, uh, again, of power, and also, you know, just to recognize, and I do recognize that, and I think it's important that, um, you know, these are people we're talking about. These are, you know, police officers are, are individuals with, with who do put their lives on the line, who do have families who worry about them, and you understand uh, that, particularly as the framing has become that any criticism of the police means we're not supporting them or we don't care about their lives. Um, but again, it, it's it's to recognize that this is this is what is really going to make things difficult to to challenge. I think because of the immense again um, um, power of of uh, the, the symbol. I think the symbolism of what police have come to stand for, not just not just in kind of our times and generations, but again for from the foundation really of of America. Um, police, rangers, vigilante groups have always said, we stand for you and we are protecting you from chaos. Uh, and, and, but that leads to a sense of deference, um, I think, and it makes it particularly challenging for journalists and politicians. It's not just us, even politicians um, to, to, uh, to be able to reconfigure again, um, our societies in a way that make things a little bit more just and a little bit more equitable. You know, just picking up on what Karen said, the question we always have to ask is who is the you? <laughs> you know, who, who has the, what, what has the police been for, right? Why were they created, right? And if we look at the actual history, we know that police, police have always existed to protect property, right? They've existed to kind of reinforce the status quo, right? They've existed to reinforce white supremacy, as well, right? Like that's that's part of the history, particularly in a place like North America. Um, so we need to, we really need to question, um, you know, what they are, what they are about. You know, what what are, what's the what's the origin story, right, of the police? That's that's an important question, I think, uh, for us always to 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 pose. Wendy, you wanted to jump in. Well, I I, I really love um, Karen bringing in politicians too. I mean, I think. 
it's so it's so valuable to be talking about how journalists can hold police to account. Um, I think that we are part of we're part of the picture here in terms of asking hard questions, and that can be a real challenge too. Especially because I know that um, when you come out against the police or you're perceived to be critical of the police, it can have real consequences, and that that's true for uh, politicians as well. And I think that that can mean that they are more reluctant to bring forward the types of changes that we're talking about much more seriously now. Um, such as reducing a police budget, reducing the size of the police force. Um, so we're not the only ones who have to sort of think about how the consequences of asking these hard questions. Can I just add one other thing just about sex? Mm -hmm. right? Like in the, in the last week, there have been stories in, in various newspapers, for example, about the uh, systemic sexism in police culture in Scotland. Right, the Scottish police force is talking about that. We know that the, the Metropolitan Police Force in London is also dealing with sexism. In my own city, here in Ottawa, in the last three years, you know, 14 women, some of whom are, are sworn, uh, some of whom are, are officers, others who are civilians, have uh, accused, you know, fellow police officers of sexual abuse and, and sexual har harassment, right? That's real. So what that suggests is that we have systemic issues um, uh, you know, within our police force, systemic dysfunction, right, within many of our police forces. And so it's incumbent upon us, right, to question, right, to challenge, to ask, to, to not be satisfied with the official story that's being fed to us. Um, because clearly there are contradictions within the police force. And yes, there are good people in all institutions, right? They're good people. I know some of them, right? They're good people everywhere, right? But I'm saying we always have to be critical and we always have to be uh, we can't be fearful, right, of challenging these institutions. Well, in fact, that's what makes a democracy, the ability to do that. So that if we, if we have a system where we cannot challenge the authorities, um, they should worry about where they're going to as part of our larger society. It's interesting as well. I mean, the, the, the lines among police and border patrol and military are increasingly blurred. We see the increased militarization of police forces. Adrian, what you're talking about, we've seen uh, when you just raised sexism in the forces, RCMP, military, local police, uh, it's all in the news in Canada right now. Um, and so how do we, how do we pick all of that apart? I mean, like, first of all, like who, do, who gets to define crime? Do we need to redefine what crime is? Do we need to redefine what a, a journalistic crime beat is? Wendy, why don't you start with that? Because you are technically the crime reporter, but I know that that means many different things to you. Yeah, it does. Um, when, I, uh, when I give my title, I sometimes feel the need to, you know, explain a little bit that I cover crime, um, but typically I focus more on policing and uh, police accountability because that's where I found myself, th those are the stories I found myself drawn to when I started on the crime beat uh, many years ago now. Um, and I just found that that is where there wasn't quite as much coverage and I felt there needed to be more, more coverage of kind of police actions themselves as opposed to just sort of the crimes that are going on, um, you know, around the city. And on that point, I will say the, the distinction is important. Um, it also has implications for, for sources. And I think that journalists are sometimes very reluctant to har ask hard questions of police, to cover the, the types of stories that don't necessarily make police look good because it could have implications for them in terms of, you know, the next story or, or turning off sources. And I won't pretend that that doesn't happen. Um, but what does happen when you're fair, when you are consistently asking hard questions, but doing your absolute best to tell the whole story and be fair in your coverage is that um, that gets noticed and you will command some respect. And I think that that is something that um, journalists can take heart in is that you, if you are fair, it will be noticed. and. It's our job to ask hard questions, no matter who is on the other end of that question. But how much access do you get to the people who need to answer those hard questions these days? Well, I was actually saying earlier, I have found that um, during COVID, it has been especially difficult because everything's kind of moved online and um, a space where typically I'd be able to ask 
questions directly to, you know, a, a deputy chief or a, a, the chief of police is at the police board. And all of those meetings have moved online for understandable reasons, but there's that sort of additional hurdle that, that I've just come to realize more recently is like, oh, I haven't had a chance to kind of chat in person. And that's important because it gives you a chance to address, you know, the person in power directly and they are, they have, they have to respond, right? They have, they don't have the ability to, to craft a careful narrative and respond in an email. Um, so it, it's especially challenging right now. Adrian, what are you thinking? The whole idea of like, I mean, you make the point that, you know, what, what's the origin story of police? And so if we look at our, you know, what our, our, our definition of crime in the news and the extension through the justice system, how do we have to think about doing journalism differently right now? Well, for example, like, I think we need to start talking a lot more about the political economy of policing, right? Like, I think it was Dwight Eisenhower at the end of his tenure, Dwight Eisenhower, of course, Republican president, but also hero, American hero in the Second World War, general, he warned America about the emergence of the military industrial complex at the end of his term, right? And, and that was a great fear that he had. We know in recent years, we've been talking a lot more about the prison industrial complex, right? There's an entire economy around the perpetuation of prisons, right? Incarcerating folks. But there's also a police industrial complex, right? Like there's a lot of money to be made as well in policing and how policing is done, whether it's the equipment or whether it's, for example, we saw in Ferguson, right? That, that marginalized people are often used as cash registers, right? You can make a lot of money by charging people. Right? And various people are able to, 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 to profit from that. Right? So there's a, there's a profit element as well that I think is important for us to, to investigate. It's important for us to talk about. Uh, I don't think we talk enough about that political, that, that police economy. Karen, yeah, I think are your I thoughts think, on that? Yeah, I think, I think Adrian is exactly right. And, and also um, when we talk about the question of crime beat, what is, the, the the margins of what is considered criminal or a crime also change over time. I mean, look at the uh, look at the situation with uh, marijuana legalization, right? Um, how you know the war on drugs, the war on crime, um, which disproportionately targeted not just affected but targeted um, black people in the United States, poor people in the United States, and we have um, high high numbers of people. Black people, especially who are in prison uh, for uh, for marijuana, which now is becoming now uh, decriminalized uh, in many parts of the of the U.S. and not only decriminalized, but that um, disproportionately, frankly, um, white and, and affluent business owners are now you know marketing you know THC, CBD, marijuana products, and now profiting off of something that generations ago. Uh, was uh, used as a way to to target and, and decimate um, black uh, and brown communities, right? So I think part of it is is looking at um, not only what becomes decriminalized, but also the new uh, tracking what becomes criminalized now, or what becomes um, uh, even uh, you know we have obviously other countries that have decriminalized sex work, for instance, um, and here in the U.S. Uh, where that hasn't been the case and looking at um, particularly how um, criminalizing sex work puts sex workers in danger, actually, not only from the police, but from people who um, choose to exploit, exploit them. Um, and so I think, I think part of it is, is when we're looking at crime beats, what gets considered a crime is it, it tends to see, it seems to tend to, again, back to the kind of Hollywood video games, cultural aspect of it is that, um, you know, we tend to see police knocking on doors and kicking down doors, dragging, you know, black and brown people out. But do we see, you know, crime beats of, you know, dragging white collar crime workers out, right? Or uh, those who are like corruption, um, kind of white collar corruption, which is still a crime, but yet somehow, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't get kind of caught into our romanticized kind of idealized symbols of what policing and crime looks like. And so again, that perpetuates a certain type of system, which allows certain uh, 
elite criminals in some ways to escape the quote unquote police crime beat. And those who do not have the money, do not have the power, do not have the resources, then are kind of swept into uh, what we consider um, policing and, and crime. And I think that has a hugely detrimental um, effect on, on all of us, frankly. It's interesting as well, isn't it, that um, I, you know, police would argue they are there to um, uphold laws and regulations. Um, but in a time of COVID, when we see mandatory vaccination regulations coming in, we see pushback from police forces. And we can see that pushback manifest itself in the way protests by anti-vaxxers and anti-maskers are happening on the street. And it's, it's kind of a window into, again, that power that the three of you are talking about that police hold in and of themselves beyond the other things as well. Yeah, my comment on that is just so much for the whole, just comply. They're the rules. It's the law. It doesn't seem to apply when when people actually question um, their rights when they're pulled over, you know, by by a police officer. That's what I. That's what I. But I think again, it, it goes back to our our questions about um, about public safety, and as we're facing a massive public health, which is a safety issue, um, and and again, looking at uh, situations where you know police are supposed to be frankly they're supposed to be public servants. Um, and so this, this, this idea that they're willingly not participating in, in rules or schemes that are supposed to help keep not only us safe, but them safe, um, again, comes, uh, calls into question, you know, what are you guys doing? What, what, <laughs> what is the purpose of, of, of upholding public order? Part of upholding public order is making sure that our public stays um, COVID-free as much as possible. And you know, you you raised in your opening statement about being a little girl and realizing that it, you know, white, beautiful, cute girls would be seen as the ones that if they're unsafe. Um, and we've seen this. You've written about the 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 obsession in the United States, both by the police and the public and newsrooms, of uh, the death of Gabby Petito. Um, we've seen this in Canada, most glaring huge issue of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. Um, um, what does that tell us? Where, again, I, I think it tells us a lot about society, but journalistically, what does that tell us about where we need to be on our game? Who wants to, Karen, you start. Oh, sure. Um, again, I think it, it goes back to this question of, and this is not, just police, but um, even of the media who is worthy of being safe and protected. So I think to a certain extent, um, again, it's not to say that, that Gabby Petito's um, case and, and family, and I think just yesterday, uh, authorities ruled it a homicide, uh, actually. Um, it's not to say that this should have sparked discussions about, um, uh, particularly about violence against women, um, and, and, and safety and all that. Uh, at the same time, you know, there's so, 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 so many missing black, brown, trans, uh, native uh, people whose, whose cases don't even get a fraction, you know, of the attention. And not only the attention of, of trying to locate the person themselves, but also trying to find out the perpetrators, um, right? And as I, as I wrote recently, um, I think you know these families of, of Jelani Day, of, of various uh, individuals across the states who have been, um, whose whose loved ones went missing or have been missing, kind of in the same like time frame, and they're looking at the Gabby Petito case and they're looking at the frenzy over it, and they're just like, where where's the help? Where's the support for us? Don't our again? It goes back to this this whole global phenomenon of Black Lives Mattering. It's not just obviously about police brutality. It's also about when our lives literally, uh, when we disappear, that nobody, even the police, um, perhaps don't care. Or uh, as families will note, um, this sense that, okay, you know, if it's a uh, missing, uh, uh, as I noted in my case, Aubrey Dameron, uh, who is a, a Cherokee woman, who trans woman who went missing, and officials in our case talked about, well, she lived a high-risk 
lifestyle, right? Or questions about almost as if um, if the victim is, is, is black or brown, well, were they involved in something that could have led to or could have caused um, their, their disappearance? And, and again, it, it goes back to um, these are all reasons, especially when we repeat these, these statements in the media, if I'm, I'm also, if my family member or something were to happen to me, I would want to go to the police if that's how I, as a member of the public, would be seen or would be treated. And you have instances where particularly, you know, those who are, who are marginalized, those who might be undocumented actually do not report um, crimes and cases to the police because they don't trust them. And they might not even trust us to be able to report fairly and accurately if they think we would give more weight to, to what the police say. So I think it, it, also, it also all tracks back into, I think even before there's a huge sensational story about um, people who go missing or, or even I'm thinking of uh, when we were trying to do coverage of the shootings at, in the Atlanta um, parlor that affected the Asian American community. Like we have so much more work to do to be able to build trust and with those communities before something tragic happens. Because then when, when that happens, we're scrambling to try to understand the trans community, we're scrambling to try to understand the black community and newsrooms don't have people in place to really be able to, to, to gain that trust, to gain that access, the same measures that we take with police to gain their trust and, and to get the right around. We should be doing the same for the communities that are being policed. Yeah, that's Adrian. Right. Yeah, I, I was oh. gonna add to that. Sorry, sorry, go ahead, Anna-Marie. No, no, I, I want your thought on that because you know, in, in, the, in the grand scheme of things, um, journalists don't have to follow the cops on what they say. Journalists don't have to actually put the same, uh, like we can talk about other missing people. We can, we can do all of that. So what do we have to think about journalistically on the spur of the moment? Because you're somebody who you hit a deadline every day. Like you've only got, you've got a finite amount of time in the lead up to your show. So what are some of the things we should be thinking about that you think about um, in trying to make a, a more balanced approach to going beyond what police say? Well, a couple of things, like picking up on what Karen was saying, I think our newsrooms need to reflect our communities, right? And if, and if they don't, then we're gonna do bad journalism, right? That's the fact. Right? It's going to be, you're going to do bad journalism if you don't have people who can tell different kinds of stories and who can ask different kinds of questions. Um, we need more Connie Walkers right, in our newsrooms. Right? One, of the, one of the finest you know, journalists of her generation, an indigenous journalist in this country, who's brought a lot of attention to the, this, this disaster of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, right? Had she not been present, right, those stories might not have been told. Well, right? so in fact, we know Connie tells the story of how she went to tell the story of a, a young woman she knew who was missing, and it was like another, another missing Native girl. We're not doing that story. That was the answer she got from her newsroom, yeah. and she just she refused to take that, that for an answer. But and yes. And yes, other, let's shout out to Connie. Yes. The one quick thing, and I try to I try to pass this or convey this to, to the students, is that the, the question I think we always need to be asking is who isn't here? Right? Mm -hmm. Who is who's who's missing? Who's missing from the story? And in every single story, we always have to ask who is not there, who's not present, right? And sometimes it's about class, right? We don't do a very good job of covering class in this in in, in, in our media landscape. Right, like like the, the the stories that we do tend to reflect the people who are there, right, or the communities that, that the journalists themselves come from. Right, we need a different kind of mix of people telling stories, whether it's in terms of race, whether it's in terms of sexuality, whether it's in terms of age, you know, whether it's in terms of class. All those things, all those factors matter. I'm going to jump to the questions, and I'm going to direct the first one to you, Wendy, because we have a, several uh, good questions coming in, and I don't want to lose time on them. Um, Shri Paradkar is, is asking, journalists reported on concepts like defunding the police, but do you find them utilizing those concepts when reporting on city budgets, terrorism, or border surveillance measures? In other words, was skepticism of police just a feeder for the news cycle and not a concept to follow up on? Mm. 
That is such a good question. I'm not surprised it comes from, from Sri. Um, it has been challenging to make sure we stay on top of covering defunding. I know what she's talking about in terms of, you know, it can be not easy, but it's, it's easier to cover issues around defunding in the immediate wake of, you know, George Floyd, the Regis Korczynski Paquette case here that happened a couple days after a woman who fell to her death um, in the presence of police, you know, that was a real local story here. Um, it's easier to get traction to do the, to do the types of stories that ask really big fundamental questions like, do we have to, should we cut the police budget? Um, it can be harder as time goes on to keep those concepts sort of foundational to, you know, the types of journalism that you're doing. I don't know what the answer is, except to just keep trying, you know, except to keep asking the hard questions of, you know, politicians, what are you doing to defund police? You said this in, you know, June of 2020, what are you doing to follow up on that now? Um, but it is absolutely incumbent upon us to keep trying to tell those stories and keep asking those questions, even when that moment has passed, because we've seen it. It's, it, you know, it ebbs and flows. We, the media covers things like, you know, the, the deaths of Indigenous children across the country. That was a real big moment for a long time. And then some of the criticism has started up again that we've dropped off, we've dropped off on, on the coverage of that. And I think that criticism is fair and should keep us honest in terms of making sure that we don't lose track of really big stories um, and only cover them sort of in the moment. Um, <laughs> another, uh, does someone else want to, Step in yeah, if I could jump in um, just super quickly, um, you know, and, and Wendy brings up a great point about, you know, things dropping off. And I think we have to, you know, give a shout out to uh, the few remaining, um, you know, resources for investigative journalism. I think a lot of perhaps what we may be thinking about and talking about might be the, you know, daily like spot news um, again, sitting here in Dallas. Uh, uh, Cassandra Harmio of the Dallas Morning News, you know, just did a great investigative piece about a single officer in the Dallas police force who's just been accused of so many abuses over the years, but yet kept getting promoted, kept getting passed around, um, racial, uh, uh, all sorts of just heinous things. And that took time and that takes money um, and resources and, and frankly, a lot of energy and, and institutional will to keep up on. So I think part of the answer is also you know, if uh, journalists and, and institutions are really serious about these questions, it's devoting um, investigative um, resources to, to a lot of these questions that we have. I've got a question from Sheila Johnson who asks, what is it about the police agenda that makes them unreliable witnesses? Adrian, do you wanna answer that one? Um. Well, I think it's like any institution, isn't it? Right? Like, like we're just hearing the, the horrifying news from the French Catholic Church, right? A pillar of society that what, some 300,000 people, some kids were abused over the last 50 years, right? Like I'm saying that, that and that, that's a pillar, that's a pillar of the society, right? Like police are like any other institution, right? They are going to fabricate. <laughs> stories right like that's human beings do that right so so i think that that we should never you know the the, the system the court system uh tends to give police the benefit of the doubt right they tend to right but that's not our job as journalists right our job that's our job is not to give any institution or any powerful individual the benefit of the doubt right our job is to doubt our job is to is to ask questions and and to challenge and to and to constantly interrogate and not take people at their word, right? Because people lie, we lie, right? I've lied before, right? I'm saying that human beings are fallible, right? We're full of contradictions. People lie, right? So so our job is to verify and to find things out, right? And to, and and so that's 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 the only way I think I can, you know, try to answer that question. Well, and I'm going to just put a question on the end of that, because there's a question from Vanessa who says, well, what are some ways budding journalists can circumvent the initial fears of challenging authorities in power? Um, because, yeah, we have to ask questions, but it's not easy. No, 
No, it isn't easy. And, and, and I think that it takes, sometimes it takes time, right? And sometimes it takes confidence, right? We're all in the process. What was that? Michelle Obama's book, Becoming, right? We're all in the process of becoming. So we're not necessarily going to, to arrive at the destination immediately, right? It takes some time. Um, but I think that hopefully, you know, people have folks like Wendy and Karen in their newsroom, folks that they can turn to, right? When they are a little bit unsure or nervous or they need some courage, right? Like I think that, that that's, that's one of the reasons why it's so important to have networks and to have mentors and to have community, right? Because community can help you to, can remind you sometimes of what you're supposed to be doing. Right or can reassure you, right when you're when you're doubting yourself, which will happen. That's that's part of just being a jury. It's part of being a human being. You can brainstorm too. You can go. How do I ask that question? Exactly. What do I do when they glare at me? Well, how do I? What do I do? Right. Um, but if you I, know, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to jump in to say, you know, circling back to some of the points at the outset about like filling out that picture and that the police provide some part of the information. You have to seek out the rest of it. Um, it's really important for younger journalists to seek out other sources and it's such a good time for that right now in terms of, you know, a lot of stuff gets gets captured on camera now, whether it's through police body camera, um, you know, or the cell phones we're all carrying around in our pockets and I'm not saying that that is somehow, you know, not it's not the silver bullet, but um, we, you know, we should be skeptical and apply the same level of vigilance that we're talking about here, you know, apply, applying to the police as we do to video, photos, other witness accounts, but that can help uh, fill out that picture. So it's not just about asking those hard questions of police. It's also just about, you know, sometimes going out into the community, going to the scene, doing some of that um, bootstrap journalism that can then get noticed and helps you progress a story. So that really speaks to who you speak to beyond the police. It's not just about beyond police say, but who else do you connect with to find out what else might have gone on? What okay. else, what, what other point of view there is? There's a question here from Nikita Mishra. As a journalist, should we include authorities POV in a news story or not? If we don't, won't we be biased? How do we find that balance? I'm just going to say right at the beginning, we're not looking for their POV. We're looking for fact from police. And um, of course, that's what they say they're giving us. But it's not solely, it's not an opinion often we're looking for. We're looking for some clear fact. As you said, sometimes the names of the deceased we're looking for. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, we, we want to include the account of the police in stories um, for a number of reasons. Number one, we don't want them to be the sole account. And number two, sometimes it's important to hold them to account about what they said. You know, I, I don't know how many times I've written a story um, and then two weeks later gone back and said, mm, that contradicts uh, a little bit what was said at the time. And I'm glad that we have it on record. You know, one really big example, going back to some of the themes around missing people is, is a statement by the Toronto police chief, um, you know, not too long before serial killer Bruce MacArthur was arrested saying that there was no serial killer in the village. And it proved important to record that because it was, you know, really problematic for the community. And it was a really important moment in the story of the Toronto police handling of, of that case. So it, I do think it's part of our jobs to just record what, what they say happened and what they say is going on. And we should remember too, I mean, in the case of the serial killers, uh, the, the women killed and whose remains were found on the Picton farm, it was actually an RCMP officer who was trying to get their superiors to pay attention to the eyewitness accounts of women who were deemed um, unreliable because they were sex workers. And um, so it was police who couldn't get other police to listen to them. And it's important that we get to those people too in our, in our reporting. Um, and I, I, we're almost out of time here. I have, a, I have a long question from Steph Crozier who is essentially asking when you can't get to the police, when you can't get to those other police on the, uh, in the system because the, the institution has created all of these walls for who the media gets to talk to, what's your advice to how to try to work through that to try to find out more about what has really gone on? Who wants to start with that one? I can, I can try a quick answer. Um, you know, uh, there's a few different avenues, consistently covering. Um, sometimes that just means, you know, people will 
understand that you're the reporter that's working on this, they'll reach out to you. Um, if you're lucky, that might be someone like a police source or someone who has information. Um, you can go the freedom of information route. I know that that is, is really challenging and not every reporter has, you know, the ability to spend the time and sometimes money, but um, that, is a, that is a way to get information, albeit several weeks or months after the fact sometimes, or years, <laughs> um, or not at all, but it's a, it's a route that's possible. Um, and then, like I keep saying, other, other sources of information. Sometimes, you know, if you get a witness account you put it to the police and they have to respond to it in, in lots of senses. So making it hard to not respond is, is another route. Um, I, I just as we end up, I'd like just to go around the virtual panel table here. Um, just uh, what would your advice be then to someone seeking advice on how they can go beyond police say in a way that allows them to, to get closer to the heart of the story? What, what, what's the what's the guiding principle you have as you do your work? Who wants to start? Sure, I'll, I'll start. Um, I think a lot about, and, and we've all been thinking a lot about this, um, about even just, just the language um, police. A lot of the, the shifting is uh, in, in the narrative and, and frankly, the power begins with words. So when it comes to, we don't have to use the words officer involved shooting, right? We don't have to use, uh, report, you know, word for word uh, weapon discharged. Um, we have, I think journalists, sometimes we have to, our job is to the truth and to the truth of what happened. Um, and part of that means being um, very uh, sort of fearless and, and confident in calling, calling a thing a thing, right? Um, if a police officer shot somebody, a police officer shot somebody, it wasn't that a weapon discharged, a person had to pull that trigger. Why that happened, how that happened is different, you know, but I, I think that's part of it. Um, and I think again, back to, um, I think this is back to why, why uh, local journalists are so important. Um, I'm thinking of, uh, you know, when police said in Buffalo last year, when um, a man uh, during the protest, a 75 year old man tripped and fell was the official report. And then it was a local news, um, local news reporters who captured the whole thing on camera and saw that he was shoved to the ground, right? And, and left to, to basically almost bleed out. And I think part of it is, is to really, um, particularly those of us who are in the national media uh, to give, give credit where credit is due to the local journalists and, and take kind of also their reporting, their, their coverage and, and their work and, and take our time to understand the nuances of the particular police departments. Um, you know, so maybe before we take their word for it, perhaps there's a history of lying that the local um, reporters know about, right? So I think this is more advice to, you know, those of us who sometimes find ourselves helicoptering in to hotspots um, to do our due diligence and, and perhaps, you know, look at, look at the, the, the history um, of, of the relations between the police and these communities so that we're better able to judge uh, when they may or may not be um, telling the truth to our faces. Uh, go ahead, Adrian, your guiding principle. Oh, Adrian, you're muted. Sorry about that. I'm back. Okay. What's your guiding? What's your yeah. guiding principle? Well, one, one, one thing I think we need to remember is, had police been left to tell the story of George Floyd, there would have been no story, right? The only reason why we know about George Floyd is because of a very brave teenager, right? Darnella Frazier, a 17-year-old bystander, right, who took out her camera and for the for for that entire time she filmed what happened to George Floyd, right? And had she not been present to verify the real story, the story would not have gone out. We need to be mindful of that, right? We need to be mindful that the police have an interest in telling their own official story, but we should never be satisfied with that story because there's always more to be told, right? There's, there's another story underneath that story. Wendy. I think I would summarize my guiding principle as, you know, cons consistency and diligence um, in terms of not, 
where possible, not just writing a story one time and moving on. I think the truth can really uh, evolve. It's not always there. You know, and sometimes the omitted facts from a police uh, press release are due to, you know, they're still gathering information. Um, you know, we need to work sometimes together to, to make sure that we keep police putting out information um, and that we ourselves don't drop the ball because sometimes that allows us to um, hold power to account in the way we've been talking about, you know, for the last hour. Um, we'll leave it there. Thank you, all of you. I'll just add that and when we don't know for sure when there's more information that we know needs to come, we should be transparent and say it. And that really helps people understand to keep um, looking as well. Thank you, all three of you, for this discussion. Um, uh, Karen Atia, Adrian Harewood, Wendy Gillis. Um, and thank you to everyone who joined us and for those of you who submitted questions. It's uh, an exciting line of programs ahead of us as well in this season. And we hope you'll join us for a few more. October 26th, in the lead up to COP26, Fatima Syed, journalist at the Narwhal, will moderate a special event exploring the importance of climate solutions journalism and responding to the climate crisis. She will be joined by Mike D'Souza, the managing editor at the Narwhal, Dr. Blair Feltmate, climate professor at the University of Ottawa, Laura Lynch, host of CBC's What on Earth, and uh, Linda Solomon Wood, CEO and Editor-in-Chief of Canada's National Observer, as well as Jonathan Watts, Climate Editor at The Guardian. That's October uh, on October 26th. Now on the 28th, we're going to resume our regular JTalk schedule with big voices. What does it take to be a columnist in today's politically fraught environment when a choice word or an angle can be a landmine and set off a barrage of online hate? My guests will be the columnists Daphne Branham of the Vancouver Sun, Shri Paradkar of the Toronto Star, and Elizabeth Renzetti of the Globe and Mail. And uh, on November 4th, I'll be speaking with Kathleen Kingsbury, the new opinion editor for the New York Times, on her mandate to reimagine opinion journalism. These events are all open for registration. They can be found on the CJF website. To stay up to date on all CJF events, you can visit the website or sign up for the newsletter or follow the Canadian Journalism Foundation on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or Instagram. And a reminder, you can find the videos and the podcasts of past talks on the CJF site, including the one we just had. It'll be up there soon. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.